Welcome to episode 52, Growing a Successful Practice, Ethical Business Planning by Amanda Patterson, Licensed Mental Health Counselor, Certified Addictions Professional, and National Certified Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Well, hello everybody. My name is Amanda Patterson and I am a licensed mental health counselor, certified addictions professional, and national certified counselor here in South Florida. I am the owner of a group practice named Caring Therapists of Broward, and I am a private practice coach who specializes in business planning for people in private practice. I am very excited today to be talking about business planning and the ethics around business planning in this podcast episode called Business Planning and Ethical Considerations for the Mental Health Professional. So during this presentation, we are going to be talking about how to create a business plan while at the same time marrying the ethics that are required for every mental health professional, whether you are a psychologist, a licensed mental health counselor, social worker, marriage and family therapist, whatever your your boards are, we pretty much have very similar types of ethics when it comes to how to run a successful business, whether you are in private practice or you're running a community mental health agency. And so the reason that why I'm so passionate about this topic is because we are not taught this in graduate school. There are some programs out there who are catching up and starting to talk more about how to run a business. Some schools are offering some classes or they're offering workshops, but most graduate programs are not uh, we're not taught how to do this, right? So we're taught how to develop treatment plans, but we're not taught how to develop business plans. We're taught how to be ethical therapists, but we're not necessarily taught how to be an ethical therapist in terms of how to run an ethical business. Like, right, we know we're not supposed to do fraud. We're not supposed to bill for clients that we haven't seen. Um, but there are some other things that come along with that. And a lot of questions that come up a lot of the times, um, either in workshops that I do or on Facebook and Facebook groups. And so I wanted to go over both of those things, right? How to develop a business plan since we probably haven't learned that and how to do it ethically. So what is a business plan? A business plan is a plan, just sort of like a treatment plan on what you want to do with your business and how you're going to do it. A lot of the times people use business plans for getting money for a small business loan, right? And so a lot of the times people are like, hey, you need to put together your business plan so you can go secure financing. Well, while that's all good and well, I think that anybody who's considering opening up any kind of agency, whether it's a community mental health agency or a private practice, needs to have a formalized business plan. I almost called it a treatment plan, a formalized business plan. So you know where your money is going to come from and how you're going to do it and where your clients are going to come from. So having a business plan can help you achieve your financial goals, secure financing from banks and grants, help you make decisions about where to put your money, help you to make decisions about where to put your time and help you to decide if your business will be viable. It's going to help you set your location, your fee structure, and your marketing materials. The thing that's really great about writing out a business plan is that it can help you empathize with your clients, right? We always, we write treatment plans for all of our clients. At least most people write treatment plans, especially if you're uh, working in any kind of managed care or you're any kind of grants, you have to write treatment plans for your clients. And so we know what that looks like and we know what it looks like to set goals and help our clients set goals and set benchmarks. But what if we do that for ourselves, right? It can also help us increase revenue and profits. It can help us identify ways for the business to grow. And for many people, the gold standard is to have a six-figure private practice, and it can help you create a blueprint for that six-figure private practice. So there's a couple ways that you can create a business plan, and especially ways that you can sort of uh, do it ethically 
Um, if you were to work, let's say, with a private practice coach to help you develop one. Another really great resource, I know we have this in South Florida, it's called SCORE. It's through the uh, Small Business Administration. And you get a mentor and they actually sit down with you and create a business plan and go through all of the steps. Or you can fill one out yourself. There's a lot of DIY templates out there, um, especially for therapists. And you can just go ahead and fill it out and set your path. So I'm really big on creating a values-based and ethical business. Right. I the way that I work as a therapist is that I really work with my clients to identify their values and then create a life around those values. And I think that business owners need to do the same thing. We need to identify what our values are. Right. We need to identify like maybe we value a lot of money and we want to make uh, half a million dollars a year. Or maybe we value really good specific uh, treatments and we're going to really invest our money in trainings. Maybe we value being a solopreneur and we don't want to have additional people um, working with us. And so I think it really is important to identify what your values are and what your own personal ethics are, marrying your own ethics from your boards. So if you haven't already read through all of the ethics from your specific boards, whether it's the um, National Association for Social Workers or APA or I know I some mental health counselor we have AMCA and we also have the American Counseling Association if you haven't already read through those you definitely want to read through them and you want to uh, pay particular attention to things around opening up a practice and some of those business things because they do outline a lot of that for us um, but there are some gray areas that uh, we need to be aware of as um, people who go into business. So when you're developing a business plan, the first thing you're going to do is identify a business goal that you have. And it's going to be a wide reaching goal. This is like the dream you have for your practice. Then you're going to write down the background that you have as a person in the mental health field. So this might include trainings that you've had. This might include your education. If you've already ran a business, it's going to include some of the information about the monies that you've generated from your practice. Again, you want to really think about writing a business plan. Somebody reading this at the end is going to say, yay or nay. So if you ever watch the shows like Shark Tank or The Profit, this is sort of the first step. They don't have them. I'd, I'm assuming on those shows they have them send in their business plan, but they don't talk about that process uh, while they're up uh, selling it. But I would make that assumption that everybody that goes on those shows have a business plan. And you, somebody reading this is going to go yay or nay. Whether it's yay or nay, this business is going to work. Yay or nay, this business is, I'm going to give this business money or this business is really profitable. And so you really want to be able to sell yourself and what you've done. So if you are a psychologist and you have specific training and you know that training is something that is going to be in high demand, you're going to want to include this in your background. And if you are a therapist who hasn't had a lot of training yet, maybe that's something that you want to consider. Maybe consider doing additional trainings. The business plan will help you decide that, especially if you're looking from an ethical standpoint. If you want to have a full service private practice, you're going to want to make sure that you have the trainings necessary to service anybody that walks through the door. That's sort of the interesting thing about running a private practice is that you don't know who's walking through the door, right? A lot of the times I've had clients call, okay, I'm coming in for depression, right? And then when they come in, I do an assessment, maybe it's not just depression, maybe there are some psychotic features, maybe this person is highly suicidal, maybe they have a long history of self-injurious behavior. And so then you have to ask yourself, do you have the trainings to be able to manage this? And if you don't, you're gonna to have to refer out. And from a business standpoint, while we definitely want to refer out when we're not, we, we can't handle it clinically, you may wanna think about getting the trainings necessary to be able to handle more clinical issues, if that's, within your value system. If you're a couples counselor and you're only going to see couples, then no, you probably don't necessarily want to get training maybe in um, like cognitive behavioral therapy for anxious clients because that's not in line with what you're wanting to do. 
The next thing is you're going to create a vision. Again, this is a, another part of the dream. Maybe this is what's going to take us one step past that business goal. So the business goal is a little bit more tangible. The vision is a, even more far reaching. The next step is creating a mission. This is the core of what you do and why you do it. This is not just I'm a therapist because I went to school for it, or I'm a psychologist because I went to school for it. It's like I decided to go into the mental health field because I am really passionate about creating awareness about mental health problems and uh, giving more access to people in the community, right? And so this is where you get really deep. This would be a really great place for you to maybe do a meditation or some journaling or some reflection work around why you want to do whatever it is that you want to do. Maybe you've been personally impacted by mental health issues, or you're very passionate about working with human trafficking survivors, right? So whatever, whatever your passion is, whatever calls to your soul, this is where you're going to put that. That's going to be within your mission. So my next personal favorite part of the business plan is what we call a SWOT analysis. This is where we look at four different aspects of your business. We're going to look at the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. This is such a transformative part of the business plan. The other parts are very important. It sets the structure, but the SWOT analysis is really what helps you to outline and define what you actually have going on within your practice, within your business plan, within your skill set. So you're going to identify your strengths. What are you great at? What are the things that you've had training in? What are the things that really set you apart from the next person? And so People sometimes, I've, I've worked with a lot of people who are either really good at doing this or therapists sometimes are like, um, I have like two strengths and that's it. And we really start to dig deeper. We start to realize like there are other strengths. Like some people are, see their extroversion as a strength or some people see their introversion as a strength. Some people are creative. Some people are really good at social media. Some people are really good at developing relationships. A strength could be that you are from your community and you're well known. So you really have to look at outside of just what are your own personal strengths, but what are the strengths that you have in your community? Weaknesses, you're gonna have to look at what your weaknesses are. It can be uncomfortable for some people to have to outline what their weaknesses are, but it doesn't have to, again, just be personal weaknesses. It could be a weakness like maybe some of you don't know what search engine optimization is. Maybe you don't know how to do Google AdWords. Maybe you don't know how to credential on an insurance panel. Those are weaknesses. And so you want to identify what some of those are because if you look at what some of your deficits are, you'll be able to set some goals around what your what you're, uh, what you want to change. So if one of your weaknesses, for instance, is insurance credentialing, then you may want to either take a course on insurance credentialing, or you want to hire somebody to do your insurance credentialing, which is probably what I would recommend. Um, doing your own insurance credentialing can be kind of interesting. Um, so really take a look at what those weaknesses are. The next, you want to look at what the opportunities are on the horizon. Is there a new hospital system being built in your area? Are there a lot of people retiring in your area that maybe a lot of um, psychologists who've been in the field for a long time are retiring and it's going to open up some opportunity for your practice? Do you have a, a really great insurance rate? Are are there not a lot of community mental health agencies in your particular area? So you really want to start looking at what some of the opportunities are. And from the opportunities is really where we start to make some of those goals. The next thing that you're going to look at are what are some of the threats to your business? A lot of people identify insurance panels as threats, managed care, um, limited access, um, even like the government and some of the regulations that are put, maybe another private practice moved in next door to you and they're thriving and you're struggling. Like it's really important to look at what the, sh the threats are. Some people might not like that word because it's not necessarily a very uh, therapeutic word, but you in, in the business world, we have to look at what our threats are. We have to be strategic about what we're doing for our practices and looking at our threats is an important part of that. 
When you do the SWOT analysis, one thing that you can do, or even in developing your business plan is that if you, you can do this by yourself with a coach or you can do it with your team. So if you have a team of therapists that are gonna be working with you, because sometimes it's really great to identify what the strengths are, what the weaknesses, opportunities and threats for the whole practice. And sometimes people see things differently. And just because something is a threat doesn't mean it can't be an opportunity. Again, not to harp on insurance companies, while they are a threat because they have been reducing rates, they're also an opportunity because there are some really great ethical providers out there that are easy to work with. So just because something is an opportunity doesn't mean it's also not a threat. So then what you want to do is from there, create what we call strategic goals. These are your long-term goals for your business. If you are feeling super inclined, you can do smart goals. I know I teach my clients smart goals, um, but when I do my business plan, I tend to make them a little bit more broad. I can tell you the ones that I used for my business plan. It was to expand services, increase exposure, and increase profitability. Now, I could have made those more smart goals, but when I did objectives for each of these, then I started to really look at what some of those smart goals were, as opposed to making those general. So these are, kind of, these are your strategic goals. These are what you want to accomplish and again, it doesn't have, it can be narrow or broad based on the specific needs of your practice. From there, for each of these strategic goals, you're going to make long-term and short-term goals. So I'm going to tell you mine that I did. So one of the things was to increase exposure. And so my SMART goal was to reach 10,000 followers on each social media site. And then I identified some objectives of how we were going to use that. Utilize interns to post more often on social media, focus on getting a thousand more followers for one social media outlet before moving on to the next. And so I had this, um, and for me, my, my business plan is year to year. And so this already sort of time oriented. So you can update your business year or business plan every year or as needed or as things are shifting. So that's kind of the cool thing about a business plan is that it can be very flexible. And things that you thought might be really beneficial, like for instance, we wanted to expand services, we wanted to start offering group groups in our practice. Well, I hit a huge snafu because I didn't have the space in order to offer groups. And so it took me about a year to realize I needed a larger space. And we, I put into the motion to go into a larger space and then start offering groups. So I wasn't able to achieve that, that particular goal in that fiscal year in 2018, but in 2019, I, I, that had been our goal. And so this is a very flexible document. My therapist hat wants to come on now and tell everybody that this is not meant to beat yourself up. This is not meant to set outlandish goals. And it's not meant to bring on any shame if for whatever reason you don't achieve your goals. It's really important to see how these goals need to be flexible because so many things are changing in the market at all times. Or you might reach a goal quicker or it might take you longer. Like I have not reached 10,000 followers on my Instagram page. And that's okay. Um, I realized that while having, for instance, while having a lot of Instagram followers makes me look cool, it doesn't necessarily translate into more referrals. And so I have, while we still do an active campaign for social media, it's not my number one priority because what was more important was to expand services and increase profitability. And so putting a lot of time and energy, for instance, into social media wasn't really in line with those other two things. And at the end of the day, while I do enjoy going on Instagram and Facebook and connecting with people, I run a group practice. Our main goal is to provide therapy and to have some profit at the end of that. So increasing exposure became less of a priority. And so... You have to really, again, you have to know what your goals and your values are for your program. So those are the basics of a business plan. Kind of went through that. Again, you can 
work with a business coach. You can work with your small business administration, or you can do this yourself. Take the steps that I've just outlined and write up a business plan. Pinterest has really great examples of business plans. And there's a lot of variations in business plans. It just happens to be the one that I like to follow because it's pretty easy to follow. Okay, so we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about financial planning. This is something that, again, a lot of people in the mental health field are uncomfortable talking about, but we're starting to talk about this more as mental health professionals, and I think it needs to be talked about. I will be very transparent that I am not somebody as a business coach who's like, you need to charge top dollar, only take you know private pay clients, and you know work the minimal amount of hours so you can have the lifestyle that you want. If that is in line with your personal values and ethics, I think that is amazing and I think that's awesome. And I fully support anybody that wants to do that. I also tend to be a very practical and pragmatic therapist. So the way that I run my practice is in line with my own values. And so I think that we have to really look at financial planning from a lot of different aspects. And so some things to consider when you're doing financial planning, going back to what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? There are some people who absolutely enjoy being clinicians and want to do it 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week. There are some people who have children, have other businesses, have a private practice part-time that don't want to see 30 clients a week, that want to see 10 or 15 clients a week. There are some people who are really, let's call it ambitious and want to grow large group practices, which can be lucrative, but also take up a lot of time. Take it from me, somebody who has a group practice, it takes up time, but it's well worth it. And so you want to really, again, this is another great place to pause, pull out your journal, do some meditation, talk to your own therapist about what kind of life do you want to live? How much money do you want to save up, both personally and professionally? Some people don't feel like they need nine months of an emergency fund, like my financial guru. I love Susie Orman. She tells us that we need, you know, nine, you know, six to nine months of an emergency fund. Maybe you're comfortable only having a three-month emergency fund. Maybe for your business, you think that you should have uh, one year of, you know, gross sales. It's really going to depend on your needs. And also, this is the time when I'm going to recommend that you absolutely talk to an accountant, especially from an ethical standpoint. You, the, the first person you need to talk to when you're going to start a private practice is an accountant. They're going to steer you in the right direction in terms of taxes. If you, are, if you do not already own a private practice and you have not already paid your own taxes, I have a word of advice for you. Not that this whole podcast isn't advice, but I have something. The IRS does not play. They want their money. When you owe money personally, a lot of the times they're much more flexible. But when your business owes money, they want their money. And they put you on very strict plans around paying your taxes. And so the first person that you want to call after you maybe call your spouse or your closest friends that you're going to open up a private practice is you want to talk to an accountant. You want to set up QuickBooks. I made a mistake of using Excel sheets when I first started. And while that's fine, when the IRS comes knocking on my door one day, which I hope that they never do, they don't care about my Excel sheets. They're going to, they, and, but they will look at QuickBooks. And especially if an accountant is signing off on um, your, your QuickBooks and reviewing it. And so I highly recommend getting an accountant. They will also help you structure your business. In Florida, I have an LLC, but we are taxed as an S Corp. And so there are some great tax benefits to doing that. And an accountant helped me decide that. And it's something that's completely legal and ethical to do. And I meet with my accountant probably every three months to review what's going on with the business. And he was one that helped me realize I needed to go into a larger space. And that financially, that was something that was viable because he reviewed my, my QuickBooks and obviously reviewed my books 
um, you know, he did my taxes for the past couple of years and knew, was able to look at the growth and project some of the growth. Another thing therapists have to think about is retirement, right? So if you're in private practice, guess who's responsible for your retirement? You are. And there are, I, I'm not going to go into what those different types of things are. I would, again, talk to your accountant and a financial planner about that, but you're going to have to save for your own retirement. What lifestyle choices are a must for you? If you have, so a lot of people that I know have children in private practice, so they can't work until 9 p.m. They're not going to work on Saturdays. Um, they have to be, you know, available in, in case their child gets sick, right? So there's a lot of things to consider. What are your musts for your business? Maybe you want a beautiful office. Maybe you want to be in a luxurious area. Maybe you want it to be really cozy and you want it to be in a super suburban area, right? So you have to decide what are the musts for your business. How will you save up for vacations? So that's the fun part about owning your own business is that you are responsible for your vacations. Will you just kind of roll that into how much money you make every month and put some aside or will, will you account for vacations? How many weeks do you want to work? That kind of goes into vacations. And how many clients do you want to see every week? How many clients do you want to see every day? Again, this is somewhere that it's very, it's very variable. I see some therapists see eight to nine clients a day, 10 clients a day. Some people are like, my limit is five. And I think that's great. I think you get to decide what your limit is. And I get you get to decide what works for you and what works for your clients. But you have to take a look at that because if you work five days a week, seeing five people a week, that's 25 clients a week. Looks very differently financially than somebody who's seeing 35 clients a week. That's 10 extra clients every single week. And if you were to average, let's just say you were averaging $100 a session, that's $1,000 a week. That's $52,000 a year. If you were to work every week, most people don't. So let's just pretend you're working 48 hours a week. That's or 48 weeks out of the year. That is $48,000 of additional income that you're bringing in. That may or may not be your goal. And that is completely fine. Um, but you have to think about these things. So we're going to talk a little bit about how you can do some financial planning from an ethical standpoint in your business. So you want to take a look at what your expenses are, rent, insurance. If you haven't already gotten liability insurance, that's like the third thing that you want to do before. And it's the first thing you want to do before you start seeing clients is getting liability insurance. If you have any questions about running an ethical private practice, you can also call your liability insurance and they would be happy to give you some advice and some feedback. I've had to call them a couple of times, not necessarily about private practice, but some of the ethical considerations that have come up for me and they are wonderful. Taxes, we touched on that. You do have to pay taxes. You do have to pay taxes. You do have to pay taxes. Marketing. That's another one that's really big. When you are marketing yourself, you have to be really honest about who you are and what you do and that you represent yourself appropriately. That if you are, you are not putting that you have trainings that you don't have or not you're not putting certified when you're not certified. So I'll tell you about a snafu that we had is that I was recently trained in EMDR. Well, I have somebody who manages my social media who is not a clinician. She happens to be wonderful, but she's not a clinician. And so she posted that I was EMDR certified because she didn't know the difference. And so all of this information went out on my social media and in a newsletter that I was EMDR certified. And it was a mistake. And we had to go back and fix that. And it was really important for my integrity that we fix that and that we send a follow-up about that, that that was a mistake that while I'm not certified, I'm trained and kind of like, here's the difference. And so making sure that all of your marketing is ethical, that you're not providing kickbacks for people providing referrals, that is unethical for us to do that. Um, that if we have a doctoral degree and something other than counseling, that we make that really that distinction really known. Um, and so there are a lot of things that come along with marketing in terms of ethics. And again, 
I'm all for people building their practice in a way that's really great. I think people therapists should make money. I think therapists should be out there more than they are. But I also know that we really need to do it in an authentic and ethical way. And there are a lot of ways to do that. And for you, again, to look at your own ethics about what makes you feel good and also looking at the ethics of your board. A lot of the times, if you're going in to therapy for work stressors, you can write off your own therapy and then you have to pay yourself. So those are some of the fixed expenses that we have as therapists or agency owners or private practice owners. Some variable expenses are trainings, license renewal. You have to have an occupational license. Um, and again, liability insurance. Definitely want to get liability insurance. Can't operate without it. Same with an occupational license. It's usually through your city and your county that you go get a license from them that says you can operate this business from wherever you're located. And we talked a little bit about those trainings, making sure that you're trained in the type of therapies that you provide and that you have maybe additional trainings if you're going to be seeing a more wide range or making sure that if you're at a community mental health agency, are you providing trainings? What kind of um, clinical skills do the people that you have working for you, what, what do they have? Is graduate school just enough, especially if you're employing registered mental health interns, right? Have they received any advanced training? If you work with depression and anxiety, like have they had any cognitive behavioral therapy training? There are a lot of really great online trainings and then there's a lot of really great in-person trainings out there. So we're gonna talk about income. Here's the cool thing about being a therapist is that you get to decide your own fees. You get to decide how much you charge. You get to decide how much your services cost. There are a lot of different ways that you can go about doing that. You can go about doing that by identifying how much money you want to make a year, how many weeks you want to work out of the year, how many clients you want to see a day, and then you'll be able to break it down into an hourly rate. So if you wanted to make, I wish I had my calculator with me. I'll pull it up, I think, on my calendar if I can do this very quickly. So if you wanted to gross, so that means before expenses, $100,000, and you wanted to work 48 weeks out of the year, that happens to be a very popular number. Okay. So that means you'd have to bring in $2,083 a week. If you wanted to see twenty. Two clients a week will just be fancy and do a weird number because with 22 clients a week, you could probably book 25 clients and you're going to have clients who no show, who cancel, who have to change their appointments. So you schedule 25 a week, you see 22, you'd have to charge an average of $94.69. So let's just round that up to $95 a session. So there you go. That's how much you have to charge or on average how much the insurance company has to reimburse you if you're just doing individual sessions. And so you get to decide how much you charge. You may also want to look at what's the average rate in my area. You may want to go above that. You may want to go below that. You Again, you get to decide what that looks like. So here's the thing that's kind of cool about being a therapist is that you don't just need to make money seeing individual clients. You can do groups, you can do workshops, you can do supervision, you can rent out your office to people while you're not in there. You can do a group practice where you do maybe a split or you, you have W2 employees. You can do consulting, it's a great way to make money. You can, have, you can work with other people that sell products and have affiliate links. The thing about using affiliate links is that you have to be very clear that it's an affiliate link as opposed to, you can't just say, hey, my friend is selling this thing, you should buy it, and then you get a cut from that and you don't tell people that you're actually an affiliate. So there's a really cool way to do that. Usually what I do is just on the bottom of the page, I'll say, um, here, this, while this is an affiliate link, these are people I really believe in, you know, I will get a cut if you purchase this. Um, but I make sure that all of the affiliate links that I, or all the people that I affiliate with are highly ethical. And that is a true story. I get approached a lot about doing affiliate links and I only work with people where I, I truly believe in their products. And you can create your own products. You can create online courses. You can create different meditation courses. There's a lot of things that therapists can do if you get creative. 
I would say, again, you're going to want to make sure that you're being ethical in that. If you're creating an online course for anxiety, you want to make sure that you're very clear that this is not therapy. You're not providing people with therapy. You are providing them with psychoeducation. And so, because you don't want to be sued for something, if something were to happen from your online course, like if somebody, for instance, were to, let's say, think it was therapy and then realize that it wasn't. There's a lot of, I don't want to be a, oh, I, I want to help us control our own anxiety about the things that we do and not catastrophize. But you have to also, when you're running a business, think of things from all aspects. Even with consulting, you want to make sure that you have separate paperwork. Another thing that comes up a lot is the difference between therapists and life coaches. And so if you are a therapist, sure, you can do life coaching, but you may have to create a separate business. You may have to create a separate bank account. You're going to want to have two sets of paperwork. You're not going to want to marry those two things. You're not going to want to have all of your therapy paperwork to be the same as your life coach paperwork. So this is where consulting with an attorney is going to be huge. This is the next person that you want to have in your support system in running whatever type of private practice or agency that you want to develop. You have to consult with an attorney on multiple things that you do. You're going to want to have attorney-approved private practice paperwork. You're going to want to make sure that you are covering all your bases and you are not leaving yourself open to being sued. You're going to want to talk about, maybe talk to an employment lawyer if you are looking to hire independent contractors or employees. You may want to talk to a healthcare attorney to make sure you're covered in terms of HIPAA. If you're covered in terms of if there are any ethical violations that may happen or if you're just faced with some ethical dilemmas. Again, your liability insurance can probably provide that type of attorney for you, but you wanna make sure you just have some names, right? You wanna start developing relationships with local attorneys around you so that if something were to happen, that you are, you're covered. If you're looking to rent out your space or you're looking to go into a larger space or purchase something, you're gonna to wanna to work with a real estate attorney. So we'll have to get very comfortable with lawyers and attorneys and accountants when you're in private practice, especially to cover yourself. You want to call your liability insurance and make sure that they cover workshops if you're doing psychoeducation workshops. So let's say you decide to do a workshop on stress management. It's not necessarily therapy, but it's psychoeducation. Are you covered if something were to happen during one of those workshops or you were giving a workshop to children at school? So your liability insurance is like your best friend besides your accountant and your other attorneys. And you want to just cover all of your bases. So we're not going to be hyper vigilant in, in building our practices in our agencies, but we're going to be strategic and we're going to use our resources. And so that is our piece on financial planning. Again, it is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it is definitely necessary. You cannot ignore your finances while you're building. So the next part is on marketing. We talked about this just very briefly and times have changed for therapists in terms of marketing. We definitely still see a lot of word of mouth, but we are also seeing a lot of people finding us on social media and finding us on Google. Probably the number one way people find our practice, and this is strategic, is through Google. We're on the first page of Google. We've done that through search engine optimization. If you're not familiar with what that is and you're trying to get people on Google, you're gonna need to get very, very familiar with that. One of the ways that Google will start to promote your business is if you have a Google My Business profile for your practice and if you get reviews. Here's the thing about reviews and I'm very adamant about this and I absolutely do not do, I absolutely follow this um, ethical boundary. We cannot ask our clients for testimonials. I have never asked a client for testimonial, testimonials or reviews. We cannot, we cannot do that even if we cover up their names. 
And so it is, and most clients do not know this. Now they are free and I hope that they go on and leave me amazing reviews, but they don't realize we can't ask them for reviews even on Google, Yelp, or Facebook. And so we have sort of this dilemma because people are starting to use reviews as a way to make decisions, yet therapists are not allowed to promote. Like I go to a restaurant and it's like, review us on Yelp, review us, we'll give you $5, we'll give you a free shot at the smoothie bar that I go to, right? They're like, check in and review us and we'll give you a wheatgrass shot or something. Um, and that's wonderful, but I can't tell my clients, hey, review me and I'll give you a wheatgrass shot in your next therapy session. So how can we do that ethically? One thing that I recommend for people to do is to ask friends, family, and business associates for reviews. If you're comfortable in doing that, some people are not comfortable asking their friends to do that or their family members to do that. Um, I try to ask people who know me in a professional setting, um, like maybe friends who have seen me conduct workshops or um, in other kinds of aspects. And that is one ethical way that you can get reviews for whatever it is. So some ways to market is to really increase that wor wor word of mouth. Let a lot of people know you're in practice. Let them know you're taking referrals setting up face-to-face -face meetings with doctors, lawyers, pediatricians, psychiatrists, acupuncturists, chiropractors, social media. There's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Psychology Today, Love Them or Hate Them. They're a really great way to get referrals. Google AdWords. If you're ever considering doing Google AdWords, please hire somebody. It is not easy to do yourself, and unless you're basically a pro, it's going to be hard for you to really know what to do. Print. Good old magazines, that works in some populations and some markets. You have to know what works in your market. And workshops, a lot of people will give free workshops or low cost workshops around the community in order to get more clients. So marketing is really gonna be up to you. I'm a firm believer is that people need to know we exist. And however that works for you, if you're in, so, one of the references for this is the book, Be a Wealthy Therapist. And so by Casey Trufo, if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. It is wonderful. It's a book that I read in planning all of this. She describes four types of therapists. I may be mangling these up a little bit in terms of what she calls them, but basically the introverted therapist, the extroverted therapist, the creative therapist, and the techie therapist. And so you have to kind of identify which type of therapist that you are, what type of marketer that you are. If you are introverted, you're probably not gonna go to a school of 50 students and want to give a talk about stress. You may do much better at face-to-face -face meetings inside of your office, or you may do really well on social media. I have a, um, a family member who is in the field and she is amazing on Instagram and and really has a great following because she's introverted and she doesn't want to go to meetings and she doesn't want to go shake hands at networking events, but she does a lot of really great things on Instagram. And so if you're a creative therapist, maybe you'll have like the most amazing marketing materials ever, or you'll be able to post. One of the therapists in my office happens to be very creative and she's constantly posting like interesting things that she has worked on, um, like maybe with teens Again, of course, we're not putting any identifying information out there, but she does like a lot of creative things in counseling that I would never think to do. Sometimes I steal her ideas and I'm like, that's great. And she really shines in that way. And her office is super cute. It's decorated really nice. And so she really capitalizes on those strengths. So you need to identify what type of therapist you are and how you can market based on that. When you are put all of this together, your business plan, your financial plan, your marketing plan, you've sat down with an accountant, a lawyer, your business partner, your therapist, I want you to give yourself the best pep talk you could ever give yourself and go out and live your dream. Whether you do positive affirmations, you repeat your mantras, you you know have a glass of champagne and cheers, whatever that looks like for you, you definitely want to go out there and live your dreams in terms of whatever it is that you want to do for your practice. So that sort of concludes the part on the business plan. We're gonna go through some ethical considerations and some things that you want to think about. 
we are going to go through these and I just want you to know some of these are not black and white. I want you to know that you have to decide again what's within your own personal scope and also that you make sure that you are following your own your the ethics for your boards. If you haven't gone to a conference for like NA NASW or APA, you may want to really consider going to one of those conferences because they will probably maybe not answer a lot of these questions, but you'll be able to connect with people, get to know people from the office, connect with other therapists. And so I go a lot of the times to our FOMCA, it's the Florida Mental Health Counseling Association's conference every year. I've actually presented on this very topic. It was very popular because it's not something that people get often. And so you definitely want to maybe go to one of those conferences, even if they're just local conferences, and connect with other professionals. So some things we've already talked about, getting liability insurance, like the number one thing, HIPAA compliant paperwork, ensuring you have a plan in case you die. That's kind of something that's interesting. And identifying a records custodian, right? So if something were to happen to you and you were incapacitated, what would happen? Or even if you were had an unexpected illness for six weeks, if you're in a solo practice, who would call your clients? How would, you know, is that person covered under a business agreement? And so there are, if you are using any kind of third party vendor in your practice, you're gonna wanna have what's called a BAA. This is a business associate agreement. So for instance, we use G Suite for our email. We signed a BAA, business associate agreement with them. There are a lot of companies out there that will do that automatically for you, but you wanna make sure that you have those in place when you are using third-party vendors. Ensuring that your platforms are HIPAA compliant, your phone system, your electronic health record, your fax machine. If you are working, having any registered interns or pre -lic provisionally licensed or pre-licensed professionals working in your office, that, that is outlined and stated. The setup of your office, one thing that's the bane of existence for most practitioners is when you can hear through the walls. It's really gonna depend on the setup of your office. And so can people hear through the walls? Do you have any noise machines? We use a white noise machine to sound out, like to drown out the noise in the hallway. Are you working in your hometown? Do you live in a small town? Are you gonna see your clients? Are your clients in school with your children? Are you gonna run into people my, mine has always been like, am I going to run into somebody like when I'm out being silly with my friends? How's that going to work? How's that going to look, right? And so there's a lot of different considerations. Just because you work in a small town, and you're going to see your clients doesn't necessarily mean that's a problem, but you may have to really set stronger boundaries. An important thing is sending follow-up and termination letters to clients who have stopped attending counseling. What is your policy around that? One thing that you may want to really think about, especially if you're running a community mental health agency, you need policies and procedures. But I think even at the private practice level, even if you're just a solo practitioner, or have one other person with you, that you have some policies and procedures for all of these things. All of the things that we just discussed and things like termination and taking new clients, pro bono services, can we provide pro bono services? Of course, but how do we identify? Can we offer sliding scale? Yes, therapists can offer sliding scale, but you also need to have it outlined whom you offer sliding scale or who you offer sliding scales to. Are you offering sliding scale to anybody who asks? Are there income requirements? How are you gonna identify? Okay, so if somebody makes 40,000 or less, yes, but if they make 41,000 and over, no, but what if somebody who makes 40,000 doesn't have any children, but the other one is a family of three? And so there's a really great website called Open Path Collective that does all of this work for you. So if you're not already familiar with them, I would highly recommend that you take a look at them if you're considering offering sliding scale. It ranges anywhere from like 30 to $60, and I think 60 to 80 for sliding scales. I think 60 to 80 is for couples counseling. And they do all of that work for you. They have people sign up, they weed out people. And so you don't have to make those decisions because we can't charge 
Susie 125 and Bobby 100 just because we feel like it. We have to be equitable because they, the person that you charge 125 may say that's discrimination because of whatever reason that you didn't charge the lower rates. So you have to make sure that your rates are consistent across the board. Now, there are some things like if they had come in when you were charging a lower rate, there are, again, it's not always black and white. Just because you charge 150 doesn't mean every single person needs to be at 150. But the way that you do it, you can't just say for person A that called, I'm going to charge 150 because they asked for a sliding scale and I'm going to charge person B 195 because they didn't ask for, because they just didn't ask for that. And so there needs to be some structure. So this is a place where policies and procedures is going to be really important. Online counseling. You can only do online counseling in the state in which you are licensed and the person must reside in that state and you have to use a HIPAA compliant platform. Things you can't do. Charge your clients for credit card processing fees. You cannot roll that to your clients. Double check with your state. I know different states have different rules, but here in Florida, you are not allowed to do that. It's the cost of doing business and I personally find it off-putting when somebody's like, hey, I need to charge you like $3 because you charge like a, you know, like a hairdresser or something like, oh, uh, you want to use a credit card? It's $3 extra. Like that's the cost of doing business. And that person can write off those fees. So they're actually not paying taxes on that. And they're using it as a write-off. And so it's a double dipping. We talked about Open Path Collective using testimonials for clients. As a review, you cannot ask for testimonials from clients. The same for Google, Yelp, or Facebook. They all have their own reviews. You cannot accept kickbacks for referrals. I'm gonna go through a couple of these that I pulled from APA that I think are really good. We must avoid making false or deceptive public statements, including related to one's practice, research, or professional credentials. Therapists need to be very careful. Like I can cure you in three sessions or help is found, you know, in a short period of time. You really, everybody is, as we know, all clients are different. While we may be really great, I usually tell people, people start to see relief from my treatment and the types of people that I treat in about eight sessions. And on the flip side, I've had clients that I've been seeing for five years. And so there is not a one size fits all and as therapists, we just need to be very clear that we're not overextending ourselves and making too many process, uh, too many promises in our marketing strategies. So we retain responsibility, responsibilities for those we engage to promote our work. Just like the example I told you earlier, I have a social media person. She posted the wrong thing. We, we had to basically do like some public relations around that. You are responsible for that person. We do not compensate those in the media for, for publicity about our practice in, the, in news items. So I know people who will pay, you know, NBC, their local NBC news to get on there. They'll pay to get on some other media outlets. We can't pay for certain things. We can't pay for our practice to be in the news. So we must uphold the accuracy of any workshops or non-degree educational programs we offer. We talked about that very briefly. Again, if you're offering workshops, you need to identify that this is a workshop and that no, this is not therapy. When we offer public advice, we must clarify the scientific basis of the advice and make any professional rules with respect to the advice to the recipients clear. And so that is sort of interesting. So if we ever have to go on to something where we are giving offering public advice, we have to identify the scientific basis. We can't just use anecdotal advice. We do not solicit testimonials from current therapy clients or other persons whose particular circumstances make them vulnerable to undue influence. And so this might also be, I wouldn't necessarily ask for my, my supervisees to write me a testimonial because of the power balance between me and the supervisee. Um, I might not ask some of my admin staff because of the power balance. So you want to make sure that if you are soliciting testimonials from people that they're not current therapy clients, I wouldn't personally ask previous therapy clients 
either because you don't know if they're ever going to come back or you don't know what some of these ethical considerations may be, but I would not also, I would consider that as well. Okay. And we do not personally or through agents attempt uninvited in-person solicitation of business from actual or potential clients whose circumstances make them vulnerable. Some things we cannot friend. So I'm going to move on. Those are just some of the APA outlines, and I thought they were really great. A couple of last-minute things. We can't friend our clients on Facebook. We, you want to make sure that you have a social media policy, and we do not engage in private messages or direct messages through social media that we push everybody to our phones or through email. You definitely want to have a social media policy in your paperwork. I think it goes without saying that we should not engage in insurance fraud. There's a lot of different ways, like waiving premiums, deductibles, charging for services not re rendered, billing for a non-covered service. You definitely want to work with a billing company or at least review your contracts for your insurances and make sure that you are following all of their ethical guidelines. Making no you want to make notes of all your pay of all your payments, including cash payments and putting cash into your business and not just keeping that for your groceries, that you have to make sure that you are doing proper accounting, that you also advise clients before going to collections. Usually in our informed consent paperwork, it talks about collections. You wanna also talk, or also get information from your local law, like laws and regulations. Everybody has a separate board. Everybody has specific laws and regulations. You want to make sure that you review those. So again, lots of reviewing in terms of how to run an ethical practice. Review your own boards, review the laws, both for the state and for the country. We have two separate ones. And it's really important that when you're doing a business plan that you always put that ethical lens on to there, that you're making sure that you are not missing anything. You may want to have a third party person, even if it's a, a trusted colleague, review your business plan and some of your business practices. One thing that I would highly recommend that you do is if you haven't already joined a consultation group or a supervision group that is very helpful or a mastermind depending on what level that you're at over the past year i was in a mastermind group with a group of about eight other therapists and that we we talked about some of these ethical considerations that came up and that was very very helpful um i really enjoyed that process because we were able to bounce ideas off of each other. And then when things were didn't sound right or kind of sounded like hmm, maybe we should consider that, we were always directed to talk to an accountant, talk to a lawyer, call our boards. And so that's usually my, my first line of defense is like call your boards, call your boards, call your boards. And so if you're not already a member of some kind of association, whether do you pay your dues to APA or ACA or NASW or... AAMFT. I've got to like think of all these acronyms. I'm um, not sure I can remember all of them. But if you haven't already paid your dues to them, these are one of the benefits of being a member is that a lot of the times you can call them and get advice and get recommendations. A lot of the, the conferences are starting to include a lot more information about business planning, about being an ethical therapist, about private practice. It's something that a lot of people are really interested in. And I know that they usually have different tracks for private practices and they have tracks for community mental health agencies. And so I think it's really important to go ahead and look at all of that. And so I want to thank you for listening to this presentation. Again, my name is Amanda Patterson. I am in sunny South Florida. I, my group practice is Caring Therapists at Broward. The best way to reach me two different ways. I have a website. It's amandapattersonlmhc.com. And I also have a Facebook for therapists, a uh, Facebook group for therapists called My Private Practice Tribe. We have about 9,000 members, at, a little more than 9,000 members as we um, are going strong today. I'm not sure 
where we'll be at maybe when you're listening to this. But if you are looking for additional support, I would strongly recommend that you join our group or join another group that is similar. A lot of the times people will post about ethical dilemmas and then people will start seeing the same answers like call your boards, call your boards, call your boards or no, I do that. No, I do that. No, I do that. And while you might not want to take the advice from a Facebook group, it's, it starts to give you some ideas, right? Or, hey, have you ever considered doing this marketing strategy? And then people are going to be like, no, because I called, you know, the, my boards and they said it was unethical. And then you start to see lots of the, the same answers. So it's a really great place to get initial information about whatever it is that you have uh, in, for a concern. And so I will leave you with always look through an ethical lens when you are building any type of practice or in anything that you do being a mental health professional, while at the same time considering that you're allowed to make money and you're allowed to build a profitable practice and that you need your people. You need your accountants, you need your lawyers, you need your colleagues, you need your supervision group, you need a plethora of resources just like we work with our clients to build up their social support we need to build up our business support. And so I'm happy to be on that journey with you. And I look forward to connecting with you. Thank you very much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.